This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea and their best-selling Undaria Algae Body Oil. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. In the early morning of June 18, 1983, NASA's seventh space shuttle mission was ready for launch at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Body flap and speed breaker in launch position. On board the space shuttle were five astronauts, but one of them was about to make history, 32-year-old mission specialist Sally Ride. And liftoff, liftoff of STS-7 and America's first woman astronaut, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. She had started preparing for this moment in 1978, when NASA had recruited six women to be trained for spaceflight, chosen among thousands of applicants. There was Sally Ride. She was an astrophysicist and tennis player. Electrical engineer Judy Resnick. Kathy Sullivan, the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. She was an oceanographer and geologist. Anna Fisher, a medical doctor by training. Ray Setting came next, also a medical doctor. And chemist Shannon Lucid. Breaking into this male-dominated field was a long and grueling journey. Space journalist Lauren Grush writes about it in her new book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. She says NASA chose Sally Ride to go first, in part because the mission matched her skills. When it came time to pick the first American woman to fly, The flight was STS-7, which relied heavily on the robotic arm or the remote manipulator system. And at the time, Sally was one of the best at manipulating that. But Lauren thinks it was also because of Sally's personality. You know, Sally was a known introvert and not one to seek the spotlight. Lauren says NASA leaders didn't want the distinction of being the first American woman in space to go to the astronaut's head. It's interesting because it, that trait may have also played in, in her favor in terms of why she was selected. Leading up to the launch date, the pressure was high. Sally was getting hundreds of requests for interviews. She made a note that it felt like her life wasn't really her own anymore because everyone wanted a piece of her. And while they were all excited to talk to her, it was a bit of a burden and a lot for her to handle. Every day is different, especially when you're training for a crew. You have to spend 12 to 16 hours in the simulator one day, spend the next day flying to, might be Florida for a, for a test, it might be Colorado to visit a, an experimenter and see the, the experiment that you're actually going to be flying. Every day is different, and every day is long. It felt like all eyes were on Sally. She mentioned that she was scared she was going to mess up somehow, and I think that's a really loaded statement because she knew that If there was some kind of issue on board, and especially if it was related to something that she had done, the the headlines were going to be proclaiming, oh, first woman messes up. Pushing the boundaries of human exploration, reaching new frontiers, is already a lot of pressure. But doing it as the first adds another layer to that. On today's episode, a conversation with Lauren Grush about her new book on female space pioneers, their journeys and challenges, and what kept them committed to their missions. Later, we'll get a sneak peek at a new documentary that features a Navajo NASA engineer who says his childhood in Arizona prepared him for building drills that work on Mars. So let's get started with Lauren Grush and her new book, The Six. In addition to covering space for Bloomberg News, Lauren has a personal connection to all things space. I always like to say that space is in my blood. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the space shuttle program. Both my parents met at NASA and fell in love there and got married. And they both worked on the space shuttle program for their entire professional careers. 
Lauren's book starts long before the space shuttle program, with NASA's early days, when one of the qualification requirements for being an astronaut was jet piloting experience. That automatically disqualified women because they were banned from flying jets. But women tried to make inroads into space anyway. There was a program in the 1960s led by Dr. Randy Lovelace, a physician who played a key role in selecting NASA's first astronauts. He also started testing some potential female candidates, their health, stamina, how well they could handle extreme situations. He was interested to see if women could also pass the same test. Now, unfortunately, it's noted that his reasoning for doing so wasn't necessarily altruistic or super feminist. You know, he was thinking that, oh, in the future, women would need to go to space as secretaries. But despite those motivations, he still teamed up with multiple women to see if they could actually pass these tests at his Lovelace Clinic. And so, you know, it was done a bit under the radar, but their training got cut short when NASA found out about the program. It was not an official program. One of the women who was part of that program was Jerry Cobb. Tell us about her, how she got involved, and ultimately where she ended up. Yeah, so Jerry Cobb was a very accomplished pilot back in the day. And so that's something to note. You know, there were plenty of women who were great pilots and skilled pilots back in the 60s. They just didn't have that jet piloting experience that I mentioned. But Jerry, you know, she met Loveless and, you know, told them about her credentials. And that really piqued his interest to see if she wanted to come to his clinic and go through all of the rigorous tests and medical exams that he had put the men through. And so once she did that, she became a bit of a, you know, a celebrity. There are a bunch of articles that came out about her and, uh, you know, she received a lot of attention. And ultimately, she was really active in recruiting other women to come to the Lovelace Clinic and undergo those same tests. And so she became a bit of um, an evangelist for women in space at the time. When NASA shut down the testing, the female participants tried to push back. They lobbied decision makers in D.C. to keep their training going. You have a quote in the book from from Jerry Cobb where she was giving testimony to Congress and she said... Now we who aspire to be women astronauts ask for the opportunity to bring glory to our nation by an American woman becoming first in all the world to make a space flight. Ultimately, it just wasn't something that, you know, NASA or the U.S. government were taking seriously at the time. We were in a very heated space race with the Soviet Union, and winning that race was the biggest priority above all. And so any... Anything that was seen as a distraction or that was going to slow down our victory was not seen as something that we needed to focus on. And so I think when women were trying to lobby to be included, that was considered a distraction and something that could be a detriment to the program because it was anything that distracted from the goal of of beating the Soviets. And then, of course, in 1963, the Russians did become the first to send a woman into space, Valentina Tereshkova. So how did that derail the attempts of these women to to get up there? Well, unfortunately, the way that Valentina's flight was portrayed was pretty terrible. Many NASA officials kind of wrote it off. They just said it was a publicity stunt by the Soviets and a lot of rumors kind of started to surface about Valentina's flight, you know, that she had been quote unquote hysterical or that she just had some kind of nervous breakdown while she was on the flight. So, you know, some really negative and terrible ways of just downplaying that accomplishment because ultimately they just didn't see it as a priority and they thought of it as this kind of frivolous publicity stunt. Now, it, it should be said that a Soviet or a Russian woman did not fly again for many years after that. So perhaps it was some form of a publicity stunt at the time, but for NASA to act like that and to brush it off and act like it wasn't important, you know, just kind of goes to show what these women were up against and the, the minds that people had back in that era. 
How did the fight for inclusion continue? When did the program start to officially include women? After the Apollo program ended, and as NASA started to transition into its new phase, you know, the country was also transitioning. We had the civil rights movement, the feminism movement. And so there, NASA was starting to get questions, external questions about you know, why women and people of color weren't being included in the astronaut program, and internally as well. In 1973, NASA's Equal Opportunity Officer, Ruth Bates Harris, issued a scathing report that called the agency's efforts to hire women and minorities a near-total failure. She was fired for her report, but later rehired after a lot of press coverage and congressional hearings on the issue. So it was getting to a, a crucial point that NASA just couldn't ignore anymore. They had to figure out how to be more inclusive and to start bringing people into the program who were previously excluded. Around the same time, NASA started the Space Shuttle program, reusable spacecraft that could do several trips to space. The hope was that they would one day make space travel more routine. And they used star power to promote the program. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols. But I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space. NASA was working on a new vehicle that was going to be larger and what they hoped would be affordable and more routine than spacecraft before. So this would allow for wider array of crews, people with much more experience. So instead of just having pilots, which they also still prioritized and coveted, they wanted engineers and scientists and doctors and people that didn't necessarily have piloting or military background. So they created this role called the mission specialist, which was probably the most relaxed criteria that NASA had ever had for astronauts at the time. And that really opened up the channels for people to come in who had not been able to before or would have previously been excluded. And then at the same time, NASA also, the selection committee that looked for these astronauts very much made diversity and inclusion a priority. So that dictated the various choices that they made when recruiting astronauts for the program. Now the shuttle will be taking scientists and engineers, men and women of all races, into space just like the astronaut crew on the Starship Enterprise. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind, minorities and women alike. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. NASA also ran ads in college and university newspapers. Several thousand women ended up applying for the program. How were the finalists selected? How did the process work? Right. So it was up to the selection committee to narrow down the applicants that they thought were best. And they ultimately got it down to around 200 finalists. And those finalists came in groups to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston to undergo a week of, you know, a, basically an audition. And when they were down there, they underwent medical evaluations, testing, health testing. They underwent a psych evaluation, which was the funniest part to me. It was described as a good cop, bad cop scenario. So they would meet with one psychologist and he was very nice and friendly, would ask them what animals they would be if they had to come back in a new life. And then there was a bad cop psychologist who would ask them to count backwards from 100 by 7 and then would yell at them when they ultimately got it wrong. But what really decided their fate in the program was a an hour and a half long interview with the selection committee. And it was pretty simple. They just asked them about their lives and their background and what they ultimately wanted to achieve by coming into the space program. And what they were looking for were people that obviously could work as a team, that were really passionate about their fields, that they also could 
do different things. So not that they didn't put all of their eggs in one basket because as an astronaut, you have to work in a wide variety of areas. And they were also looking for people who could be patient. You know, going to space is just a small part of actually being an astronaut. And so they wanted to make sure that the people who were coming in and applying for this job understood what the position entailed and that they could ultimately handle it. We're talking about female space pioneers with Lauren Grush. Her new book is The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. Coming up, the women face some big challenges, like survival training in the ocean and some more mundane ones. It was described to me as NASA needed to make space for women. So, for instance, adding a woman's bathroom at the locker room. That's next on The Pulse. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about space pioneers with Lauren Grush. Her new book is The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. It's about Sally Ride, Judy Resnick, Anna Fisher, Kathy Sullivan, Shannon Lucid, and Ray Seddon, who were selected in 1978 among thousands of applicants to become mission specialists at NASA and be part of crews in NASA's space shuttle program. In Houston today, a new group of astronauts began preparing for space shuttle missions, including the first women astronauts and the first blacks. This is Judy Resnick, age 29. She has a doctorate in electrical engineering and is one of America's first woman astronauts. None of the six women are test pilots, though one flies small planes. They are physicians, scientists, and engineers like Judy Resnick. Titled mission specialists, they will handle experiments and logistics during space shuttle flights. So the six who were selected what kind of training did they then have to go through once they they got the go-ahead? Probably the more exciting training was they had to stay current in NASA's fleet of T-38 jets. So they each had to have 15 hours a month of flight time. Now, some of them did come into the program as pilots, but they weren't fl- allowed to fly the jets because they just didn't have that jet piloting experience And so they had to fly in the backseat of the T-38 jets. But that still allowed them to get a feel for how to fly the vehicle. They weren't technically allowed to take off and land, but, you know, I've heard admitted from a few uh, male colleagues, former male colleagues, that they did actually let them fly and take off and land. So some of them did get that experience. And then also one of the probably more uh, well-known days of their training They had to undergo water survival training and ground survival training just because NASA wanted to make sure that if they bailed out of the jets in some kind of emergency, that they would be able to land either on water or on land. And that training, those training days were very difficult, at least when it came to 
being able to concentrate because there were quite a bit of press surrounding them. Obviously, the media was very fascinated with the fact that women were in the program at that point. So, you know, they were trying to perform this really complicated exercise by landing under a parachute and there were barges of media taking their picture, you know, at the same time. So I can only imagine how hard it was to juggle that. But most of their training was spent in the classroom. You know, a lot of it was learning every subsystem, every component of the space shuttle. You know, obviously NASA wanted them to be experts in case something went wrong on the spacecraft while they were in space. Cause you know, anything that breaks, you have to fix it if you're on the shuttle yourself. And then also just learning about their payloads, learning about software, you know, taking science classes, various satellites that they flew with were examining the Earth from space. So they would take geology classes or mapping, which probably was pretty easy for Kathy Sullivan, who had had that background. So just things like that. Uh, It was a lot of information that they needed to process and and synthesize. I'm wondering about the relationship between the six women. I'm thinking there was probably a lot of friendship and being in this together, but there must have also been some kind of competition because only one of them was going to be the first U.S. woman in space. Yeah, the way it was described to me is that while the women were a united group and they could put on a united front when needed in terms of issues that, you know, affected all of them, you know, they weren't necessarily a group of best friends. I think that was a little surprising for me to learn too, but also that's just the way it is in everyday life, you know, not every not every woman gets along with every woman and some were closer than others, you know, obviously Ray and Anna gravitated towards each other because they both had similar backgrounds. They both were doctors. They were both married to other astronauts. Uh, Sally and Judy found that they liked each other and were closest to each other in the program. And so, you know, that's just that's just how working relationships go. But yes, if they ever did need to be a united front for any kind of woman-related issue, they certainly could come together and 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 help each other if needed. What were some of the logistics that had to be solved on NASA's end? You know, when you're trying to now include women into a program that had previously been all male, it means new spacesuits. It means new accommodations, perhaps. Yeah, so it was described to me as NASA needed to make space for women. So, for instance, adding a woman's bathroom at the locker room But also, you know, there were efforts to try and create smaller size spacesuits for women to be able to perform spacewalks. You know, when you, in order to do a spacewalk, it's very important to have the right fit. Otherwise, you really can't grasp, you can't maneuver as easily as you can if it, unless it is really fitted to your body. So Anna Fisher was involved with the early process to try and create you know, an extra small suit. Ultimately, that was abandoned. And, you know, that decision has had repercussions for years to come. But there are other things, you know, NASA developed a all, an all-gender toilet for to be used on the space shuttle as well. So it's just things like that where you, where women had not been top of mind before, just thinking of ways that they could more easily be incorporated into the program. Now, there are definitely some funny moments, too, as NASA tried to be inclusive and be considerate of women's needs. When Sally Ride first took her trip to space, she had to do her bench check where she looked over her the equipment that she was bringing with her on the space shuttle, and she grabbed Kathy Sullivan at the time, and they both looked and noticed a pink plastic tube in her equipment and they pulled on it and another pink plastic tube came out and another pink plastic tube came out all linked together in sausages and it they realized it was tampons tied together and the engineers wanted to know if a hundred tampons would be enough for a week-long trip into space and Sally very politely had to tell them they could cut it in half and be just fine. How did the media cover all of this? Yeah, I would say the media was probably the biggest hurdle the women had to deal with when they joined the program. Obviously, there were some hiccups when it came to various 
unenlightened engineers who were still at NASA at the time, but it really was the outsized media attention that they received. You know, it was just a burden to have to constantly talk with the press. And then the types of questions that they were asked, you know, Sally really took the, the full brunt of it when she was the first American woman to fly to space. You know, they she was famously asked if she wept when the simulator broke down. When there was a funny a glitch or whatever, uh, how did you respond? How do you take it as a human being? Do you, do you weep? Do you, um, what do you do? Why doesn't anybody ask Rick those questions? <laughs> and, you know, if she ever wanted to, if she ever dreamed of being a boy, and if she wanted to be the first mom in space, and if she was going to have kids, you know, it was just very, you know, it, the media very much reflected that there was still a lot of a long ways to go in terms of the general public and how they viewed women being treated as peers and equals in the space program. Sally was the first American woman in space, but not the first mom. That ended up being Anna Fisher, a physician by training. So Anna had dreamed of being an astronaut her whole life. You know, she has a really pivotal moment in her childhood where she listened to Alan Shepard's flight, the first American to fly to space. And she knew right then and there that she wanted to be an astronaut. She just thought it was the perfect job for her. But obviously she didn't think that it was going to happen for her because it was only men who were flying at the time. So she wound up choosing to be a doctor, thinking that maybe one day, you know, they would have space stations and that they would need doctors on those space stations. Also a similar thought that Ray Seddon had, which I think is really interesting. Anna was chosen as part of the crew on the space shuttle Discovery, which launched in November of 1984. Part of its mission was to deploy two communication satellites and to retrieve two from orbit. When Anna was selected, she was pregnant. By the time the shuttle launched, her daughter was a little over a year old. And so she was going to be the first mom in space, and she knew that when she was selected that, you know, not everybody was going to be fully on board with her choice, but she just had decided, you know, this is something that I really am committed to and it's something, it's my job and I'm going to do it. And she never wavered from that decision. And so while she understood that there were criticisms, she essentially ignored them and moved forward. And the criticisms of her being a mom to fly to space and how people viewed that. They were not lobbied at her male colleagues who also were fathers and flew to space despite having children. Engine throttling up, three engines now at 104%. Challenger, go with throttle up. Challenger, go with throttle up. One minute, 15 seconds. Velocity, 2,900 feet per second. Altitude, nine nautical miles. Downrange distance, seven nautical miles. At 11.40 a.m. this morning, space program experienced a national tragedy with the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger. Lauren also writes about the Challenger disaster in her book and astronaut Judy Resnick, who lost her life in that tragic accident. Judy Resnick was an electrical engineer. She was working at Xerox at the time of her selection. And, you know, I tried my best to to determine exactly how she found out about the selection. There are various different tales, but I think it was similar to to Sally in that she heard an advertisement or a friend of hers had heard the advertisement. And she also was similar to Sally. She had never considered really being an astronaut until she realized that she had the right credentials at the time of her selection. And, you know, Judy's great because she went on this very small campaign to make herself seem the, like the best candidate for the job. You know, she tracked down Michael Collins, one of the Apollo 11 astronauts at the National Air and Space Museum, and was asking for tips on how to be a, the best recruit. Uh, she also took up flying and became more active. And so, you know, for Judy, that's just a good example of how she operated. You know, when she wanted something, she was very adamant that she was going to get it, and she took every step necessary to make it happen. Judy Resnick's already been measured for space helmet and suit. 
What kind of mission do you want to fly, do you know? I'd like to fly any mission, actually. Um, the intent of a mission specialist is to train us to be generalists and to learn a little bit about every field. And I don't really have any, anything particular in mind right now. I'd, I'd be glad to fly in anything that they let me fly. The Challenger mission that ended in tragedy in 1986 was Judy's second space flight. Well, by all accounts, I, you know, Judy was loved space and she loved going, being an astronaut. And she even remarked to a friend that she wanted to live on Mars someday. You know, she was very eager to stay with the program as long as NASA would have her. So I think she was most likely thrilled to get to fly to space for a second time. And also she, you know, during her first flight, she was down in the mid deck. So she didn't actually get to watch as the flight took place through the primary windows. And so for this flight, she was actually in the main cabin. And so I think she was just thrilled to to get to fly to space. And I think that was the same for all of the astronauts at the time. Now, the Challenger tragedy catastrophe obviously had a major impact on NASA, on the program as a whole. Did it have any kind of specific impact on the women in the program? Well, it certainly had an impact in various ways. You know, for Sally, it really kind of started to to dictate, you know, how she was going to move forward with her career. So she'd already been thinking about possibly leaving the astronaut program, perhaps maybe flying a third time and then leaving. But then once she was assigned to the Rogers Commission to investigate the Challenger accident, it really was kind of the last chapter for her at NASA. Now, she did stay on to uh, write a report that came up with recommendations for how NASA should move forward, but it was ultimately what pushed her to, to leave and to consider a new chapter of her life. Now, some of the other women would stay on and, you know, they powered through. Others didn't fly again, but it definitely had a major impact on the entirety of NASA and how they flew flights, you know, moving forward. So safety became a a much bigger priority. They incorporated new features such as pressure suits to make sure that people could have some kind of barrier in case the cabin lost pressure, certain things like that. It was just they completely reevaluated all of their safety procedures and it impacted the way they flew moving forward. Of the six women you profiled, not all of them are still living. But tell us about the ones who are still here. What are they doing? Sure. So most of them are retired. (laughs) Anna Fisher and Ray Seddon and Kathy Sullivan and Shannon Lucid are still with us. Um, many of them are enjoying their retirement, but some of them are still uh, making records. For instance, Kathy Sullivan just a few years ago went to Challenger Deep, which is one of the deepest known locations in the ocean. And so she's really one of the only people on Earth, I think the only person on Earth, to have walked in space and to have gone to the deepest part of the ocean. So even after they've flown to space and and made records, they're still making plenty of records even to this day. And what do you hope people will take away from the book other than just learning more about these women? One of the big things that I like to emphasize is that the six are a great illustration of the fact that there's no one true path to space. All of them have extremely different backgrounds, extremely different interests, and they all found out about the space program in different ways. Some of them dreamed of being astronauts. Some of them didn't. Moving forward, obviously, there's quite a long way to go. If we want to reach equality and parity, less than one-sixth of the people who've gone to space have been women. And, you know, for women of color, the statistics are pretty terrible. Now, NASA is working towards its Artemis program, which has the stated goal of sending the first woman and the first person of color to the lunar surface. And that's really the first time that NASA has made that mission statement that they've dictated exactly who they want to send. You know, it is something that is top of mind for the agency. And as we saw with the 1978 selection, when you make those things a priority, it's much more likely that you'll succeed and find the best people for the job. So, you know, there's there's quite a bit of ways to go. We've had women uh, selected with every subsequent astronaut selection after the six were brought on board, but it's still a pretty male-dominated field. And, you know, it just needs to be something that we consider each time we think about who we're sending to space. Mm-hmm. 
Lauren Grush is a journalist who covers space for Bloomberg News. Her new book is *The Six: The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts*. Coming up, a new documentary features a Navajo NASA engineer who says his upbringing prepared him for his work on the Mars missions. Growing up in northern Arizona, it looked exactly like Mars, and so it's, I always kind of say it's, it's almost like muscle memory, like understanding how a rock feels and can break apart or the mechanics of a rock. Is, it's interesting how much those types of memories will come back to me when I'm, when I'm dealing with them here. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about space pioneers. Maybe Aaron Yazzie was destined to become a NASA engineer working on their Mars missions. I often describe or tell people that the area that I live, that I grew up in, looks like Mars. The same deserty kind of landscape, mesas, waterways, canyons, mountains. It's a beautiful place to grow up. Aaron's family lived in a small town in Arizona. I'm Navajo. I was born on the Navajo Nation. Usually when people ask me, like, oh, did you always know that you wanted to work at NASA? My answer is always no. I never dreamed that I would end up here. Nobody from my family had really gone down the path to come to a place like this. Aaron is a mechanical systems engineer at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, building tools that are drilling for samples on Mars. To do that, we basically replicated Mars here on lab in a big environmental chamber. You could take it down to a really cold temperature, just like Mars, a low pressure, and then we could put sandboxes in there and, and rocks, and we could practice drilling. And the mechanisms that we're testing actually feel like they're on Mars. And so that gave us a lot of information about how best to gather samples, what parameters to send the, the rover to get the perfect sample. Aaron was the lead engineer for the drill bits that are currently being used by the Mars rover Perseverance. We are one minute on entry interface. February 18th, 2021. The Perseverance rover lands on Mars. His work is featured in a new PBS documentary series called Native America Season 2, which is coming out this October. We send Perseverance to Mars in order to collect rock cores to look for signs of ancient microbial life. And this is actually the star of the show. This is our coring bit. We drill into a rock. We break it off from the parent rock material extract that, ingest into the tube, and then we can take that and store it back inside the rover. 
we eventually want to bring these samples back to Earth and study them here to look for signs of ancient microbial life. Aaron says they built three different drill bits that are now being used on Mars. So one of them is a rock core sample. It can drill into a rock and pull out a little rock core that's maybe the size of a piece of chalk. There's another drill bit that we use that's called the regolith bit, and that you can sort of stick its front end into like something like a sand dune and get a sample of the Mars regolith. The last one type of bit is the, an abrading bit, and they use this bit a lot. It basically makes a shallow abrasion about maybe three inches in diameter, um, and it only goes down like maybe like half an inch or so. And that really is just to remove the top outer layer of a rock, and we can get a really good look of what is inside of a rock that has been preserved for just billions of years, and they can get it a good idea of what the chemical or elemental makeup of a rock is and decide if they want to get a actual rock core sample from it. And so that was amazing to see like something that you build actually get used on Mars. And I get to see pictures sent down often of <laughs> these drill bits with the rock cores on the inside. And it's really exciting. And I was wondering, as you were talking, you know, it's one thing to design a drill bit to be used by a person or to be used during some kind of science experiment here on Earth. But now we are thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away. There is not a person anywhere near this thing. So what are some of the additional challenges to make sure that the drill bits can do the job without anybody there to <laughs> to fix things if, if something goes wrong? Right. That's a great question. Um, as the person who's building the drill bits, I worked extremely close with a whole team of people that were designing and building the actual drill coring mechanism, the drill. And we have to consider all of that. Like we're not there to to actually by hand drill into a rock. So how do we make a robot sort of like act the way a human would? And so we can do that by controlling a bunch of different parameters that we designed into this mechanism. And so one of them is the feed forward, how we feed into the rock. Another one is the rotation, the, the speed at which we rotate the bit. And we also have a percussion mechanism, which means that we sort of hammer on the back of the bit as we're drilling down into the rock. And so through testing and through a bunch of developmental type of prototypes, we started to understand like if we start to go into a rock that's a little harder, then let's tune each of these parameters to adjust to that hard rock. And then the same thing for a soft rock. We have to adjust the parameters and figure out how can we uh, drill into this rock delicately, you know, like not break it up too much. And so that's kind of, the rover has some smarts. It has some artificial intelligence built into it to sort of feel for what kind of material it's drilling into and, and adjust itself so that we make sure that we get a really good sample, but also that we don't wear out our equipment too much. I mean, that's all part of the challenge is dealing with Mars' surface is because it's unpredictable. You know, you can't put any requirements on the surface of Mars. You have to be able to adapt to any type of situation. Any challenges that you remember where you felt like, oof, this is not, this is not going the way I want it to? I think um, because we're trying to gather samples that are looking for the sensitive information that deals with, like, possible life, like microbial life, that kind of thing. Um, we needed to make sure that we were extremely careful about cleanliness and making sure that we didn't accidentally send something to Mars that might have some kind of signature that we believe it, it give us a false uh, discovery of, of life, you know, because we sent it on, <laughs> on the equipment that we built. And so that meant that we worked in very extreme clean rooms. We had a lot of restrictions on what materials we could use. In this clean room, like we were when we were building it, we we weren't allowed to have hair products or makeup or anything that had scent to it. Like if you used a shampoo or or something that had a, a scent to it, you couldn't go into the clean room. And so it was new to us, and it put a lot of challenges on how we design things and how we build things. So you get special shampoo. We got not uh, unscented shampoo and unscented deodorant. <laughs> wow. Okay. And no body lotion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Aaron is currently working to support the Mars Sample Return Campaign. 
which consists of two more missions. So one of them is a lander mission. It'll land on Mars and it'll carry with it this big rocket on its back where we can pack tubes in the front of its nose cone uh, in this assembly called the orbiting sample canister. And we're also going to bring with us some Mars helicopters, all to help us gather the samples that we're depositing on Mars. So Perseverance is going to drive and meet this lander, and they're going to be able to hand sample tubes over between each other and pack that rocket full of up to 30 sample tubes. There's also a depot on Mars called the Three Forks Depot, where we can send our helicopters to go fetch those uh, samples in that location and bring them to the lander. That's our second option for gathering samples. And then once it's all full, we close it up and we can launch that rocket from the lander into orbit around Mars. And that's when our second mission comes into play. The Mars Sample Return Orbiter will fly from Earth to Mars and catch that orbiting sample can mid-orbit, package it, get it ready to send towards Earth and push it towards Earth, and it'll come and land in the deserts of Utah. Um, And that's how we plan to return these sample tubes to Earth. And when will they be back? The plan for now is for in about 10 years. Ah, that's a long wait, right? (laughs) It is, yeah. I mean, there's a lot happening in that time where we're building and sending two missions and operating the Mars, and then they're they have to make the journey home. So it is, it, it is a, a long time to wait, but there's going to be a lot of activity going on. Aaron says when he's working on the Mars missions, he often draws on his Native American culture and his childhood. Growing up in northern Arizona, it looked exactly like Mars. And so it's, I always kind of say it's, it's almost like muscle memory, like understanding how a rock feels and can break apart or the mechanics of a rock. Is, it's interesting how much those types of memories will come back to me when I'm, when I'm dealing with them here. Because we're, we're building mechanisms that, you know, they want to try to move rocky material in, in a certain way and you want it to behave a certain way. And so that's always helpful, just remembering how, it, like being back home, um, and, and sort of playing in the dirt growing up essentially just helps me um, with my design thinking. But also, I, I always like to mention, too, that as Navajo people, we and I think a lot of Native tribes are this way, they put a lot of emphasis on origin stories. And that just means, like, there, there's usually traditional stories that talk about how we originated, how where we came from. The Navos have a, a story that talks about us emerging through four different worlds and we're currently in, and that's how we came into this current world. And then in addition to that, there's stories about how the stars came to be, certain constellations in the sky came to be, how different animals came to look the way that they do. So there's all these stories that talk about how things originated. And so it's almost the same as now I'm trying to look for the origins of life. And we're doing that by going to this planet that might have preserved it very well because all the rocks on the surface of Mars are very old, meaning that they haven't sort of turned over in plate activity. Um, That's why a lot of Earth's surface is, is younger. And so we're looking for these origin, the origin stories of life and that we know of it in our universe. And so that's how the two sides of my worlds came together. And do you feel on some level you are fulfilling or you are continuing the work of a lot of your ancestors who who had a lot of ingenuity, a lot of engineering skills, who built beautiful structures? Oh yeah, for sure. I always I always t- tell people that my grandparents were just natural scientists and engineers. They're sort of the first example I saw of people who could solve problems and they could take a plot of land in the desert and grow a giant bountiful cornfield. Like you have to understand how the earth works and how a weather system works and how plants work in a very intimate way in order to, to grow something like that. And and especially in such a harsh climate, my, my grandparents and my, my parents, they also just like were good builders. Like when, when we were growing up, the area that like our house eventually was, was just a empty plot of land. And we sort of built up a lot of things, helping my dad around the house and stuff. And so uh, we got a lot of hands-on work <laughs> with him. And, and that's kind of like how I learned how to like, you know, build things and design things in my head. But yeah, there have been natural engineers and scientists for many generations. And that's how they've been able to thrive for so long in this in the Navajo Nation area and and overcome so much adversity and and hardships in order to, to remain and all the advancements that they made definitely 
raised me up and put, set me up where I could jump from there to go even higher. Do you think of yourself, I mean, a lot of people look to you as, as a pioneer, as a trailblazer. Do you think of yourself in that way? <laughs> um, it, it, it has taken me a long time to come around to it. Some part of it is, is me being very humble and being, I'm just like very honored, of course, that people think of me that way. But then there's also times when I realize I need to own it because there, there are some responsibilities and a little bit of leadership that comes with, with being honored in that way. And so I try to take that and run with it and, and be a good example. I try to do outreach as much as I can to younger kids and help them understand that they can be, belong at places like NASA too. And what are some things that you want to see more of to, to get more kids involved, to, to be that inspiration? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways there's the there are more and more Native Americans coming up into the STEM fields. We do have a very low uh, percentage of representation currently, but I think those numbers are going to continue to increase because there's more opportunities, there's more visibility, there's more representation, and I want them to to feel like they belong and that there's a good community, supportive community for them at these types of workplaces. That's Aaron Yazzie. He is a mechanical engineer at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Aaron is Navajo, and he's featured in a new PBS documentary series called Native America Season 2. That's coming out this October. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Turn shipping to your advantage with USPS Ground Advantage Service. Learn how to gain a competitive edge at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.